0: You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax-certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive. And start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax. The way car buying should be. From the
1: southern branch of the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in Sultry Savannah, this is Obscure Season 2 frankenstein i am your host your friend your ear lover your literary mansplainer in chief and Georgianologist michael ian black agonizing over a canker sore i seem to have developed in the lower left quadrant of my mouth god it's annoying when that happens you know where everything, every time you try to eat something, it just stings, and you feel like, oh, there's just blood everywhere. I mean, I don't know if there's blood everywhere, but you know, it, it feels grisly, even if it doesn't appear grisly. I don't know why I got it. Maybe I haven't been drinking enough water, hydrating enough. Maybe I've been eating too many salty foods. I have a new salt obsession, or snack obsession, I guess. And you know, if you don't know, Mike and Tom Eat Snacks, my snack eating podcast, has relaunched and maybe we should do these for my snack podcast, but I'll mention them here. You guys maybe already know these, but they're new to me. Dot's home style pretzels. They, I, I don't know. I don't know if we've talked about this before, but in my writer, when I do stand up comedy, I basically have two requests. One, maybe three. Tea, hot tea. Diet Dr Pepper. Although I think I've taken that one out. And rolled gold pretzel sticks, okay? Uh, Not the logs, the sticks. You would be surprised how few times those simple requests are honored, but the point is that Rolled Gold has always been my pretzel of choice. It's just, it's just a classic, well-salted, but not overly salted, crunchy snack, okay? I like it, um, I can eat them sort of mindlessly and watch myself gain weight in real time. The dots, home style pretzel, I think, has become my new favorite pretzel. Now they're very salty. They're seasoned pretzels, so they they just they they uh, they just coat this thing in all kinds of different salty flavored goodness. I've been eating the southwestern one, so good. But the the other thing that they do is the pretzels themselves while thin and stick like are braided which creates more surface area for the salty stuff and more texture it just creates a it just it really just doubles the mouthfeel experience cuz you 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 know you got like a double helix there like a, like a strand of DNA and it really is the stuff of life these pretzels so that's a problem that I've been buying those, and it's almost certainly a contributing factor to the fact that I have an open wound inside my mouth. Now it's not herpes. Herpes is an outside wound, a cold sore. I don't have that. I don't I've never had that. And at this point in my life, it seems unlikely I will contract that. But I do occasionally get the canker sore like we all do. It's causing me some problems and I'm wondering if it's going to affect my reading at all, or if you can hear it in my speaking voice, because I'm always a little bit conscious of it when I have them, because I always feel it. Other doings here in Sultry Savannah are few. We've been slowly trying the pizza here, because, you know, one of the big fears about moving to the South is you're not going to get good pizza, you know, especially when you grew up in New Jersey and then you live in Connecticut, you're like, oh, there's not going to be any good pizza in the South. Well, I'll tell you, the pizza so far that we've had, we've had three different places, And two of them were pretty good. So that continues. As I speak to you, I don't know if you've heard me mention in previous episodes, the hotel across the street, the Gastoni and the head housekeeper, his name is Walter. And every time he sees me, he says, hi, Mr. Michael. And I always feel abashed when he says that. But I've just been watching him through the window crossing and doing his work. And and had he seen me through my window, he no doubt would have waved, and I would have seen him mouthing the words "Hi, Mister Michael," and I would have waved back and mouthed the words "Hi, Walter." Oh, there he is again. I don't know what he's doing, but he's doing something. I want to find out what. I want to find out Walt, Walter's story. I want to know where he's from, where he's been. Oh, he's carrying luggage. What he's been up to. I know he's been at the Gastonian for quite a while because he he. He certainly knew the previous owners of this house and seemed to have known them for years. So one day I'd like to know a little bit more about Mr. Walter. But that whole Mr. First Name thing is, I find, you know, as, as somebody from the northern part of the country, I find disorienting and a little bit, um, what's the word? It's a little bit embarrassing because it sounds deferential to me. You know, it's got a deferential feel to it. And I don't like that don't defer to me. I'm just the guy across the street. But you see, a lot of people do that here. I don't like him. So what's going on with Frankenstein? Well, I mean, we're nearly at the end. I mean, we might even finish today. I don't know. Just a few pages left. Last time, Frankenstein basically said, hey, Walton, I get it. You've got a little man crush on me, but I can't reciprocate because you'll never be Clerval to me. You'll never be poor Elizabeth to me. You'll never be nothing to me More than what you are already, which is a nice guy who happened to rescue my ass when I was floating on some ice like a polar bear who got, you know, victimized by climate change. He didn't use those words because back then they didn't even know what climate change was. (laughs) Idiots. So, you know, he's just repeating himself here. The last sentence we heard was, I must pursue and destroy the being to whom I gave existence. Then my lot on earth will be fulfilled and I may die. Um, You know, I find myself rooting for his death, but I don't know what's going to happen here in these final pages. So we continue now, Volume 3, Chapter 7 of Frankenstein. (laughs) Frankenstein. And it begins with a new letter to Mrs. Saville, September 2nd. My beloved sister, I write to you, encompassed by peril and ignorant, whether I am ever doomed to see again dear England and the dearer friends that inhabit it. I am surrounded by mountains of ice, which admit of no escape and threaten every moment to crush my vessel. The brave fellows, whom I have persuaded to be my companions, look towards me for aid, but I have none to bestow. There is something terribly appalling in our situation, yet my courage and hopes do not desert me. Yet it is terrible to reflect that the lives of all these men are endangered through me. If we are lost, my mad schemes are the cause." Well, it seems like, you know, maybe we're building towards something here because if the ice has collected around the ship the way it sometimes does when you head up to the North Pole, believe me, I know, I've been there several times, um, you can't go anywhere. You know, you're, you're locked there in the ice. Yeah, it could be, you could spend months like that just waiting for the, for the ice to break up. That's why they got those big icebreakers that come up, you know, when, you, when you're in the, in the North Pole. Russia's got a bunch of them, you know? America only has a couple. Because the Russians are trying to, you know, gain access or are trying to stake their claim to the oil rights up there, you know, as as climate change thaws stuff and makes it more accessible. So they're just, they're busy beavers up there, you know, trying to break up the ice and plant their flag and do whatever. That's neither here nor there. But it seems to me if the ice is surrounding the ship, then that would make it very easy for Big Buddy to come aboard and strangle Frankenstein in his sleep, and then escape again, right? It seems like there could be a showdown here. And it also seems like Walton may get a very close and personal look at Big Buddy. Maybe Walton will be victimized by the Big Buddy. After all, Victor Frankenstein has now befriended Walton, or at least Walton has befriended Victor Frankenstein. So what happens to friends of BF? They get killed, If you're friends with V Well then you're friends with me Friends of V Friends of V Friends of me And what, Margaret, will be the state of your mind? You will not hear of my destruction And you will anxiously await my return Years will pass And you will have visitings of despair, and yet be tortured by hope. Oh, my beloved sister, the sickening failing of your heartfelt expectations is, in prospect, more terrible to me than my own death. But you have a husband and lovely children. You may be happy. Heaven bless you and make you so. My unfortunate guest regards me with the tenderest compassion. He endeavors to fill me with hope and talks as if life were a possession which he valued. He reminds me how often the same accidents have happened to other navigators who have attempted the sea, and in spite of myself, he fills me with cheerful auguries. Even the sailors feel the power of his eloquence. When he speaks, they no longer despair. He rouses their energies, and while they hear his voice— they believe these vast mountains of ice are molehills, which will vanish before the resolutions of man. These feelings are transitory. Each day of expectation delayed fills them with fear, and I almost dread a mutiny caused by this despair. End of letter. He, um, you know, I didn't mention, because I was singing The Rentals. I think that's who sings Friends of P, The Rentals. You know, that that the sentiment that he said, it is terrible to reflect that the lives of all these men are endangered through me, mirroring, of course, the anguish and fear that Victor Frankenstein has felt low these past few years when all of the people that he is close to were endangered through him and his mad schemes. Um... The parallels there are striking. And here again, Victor Frankenstein cheers up the sailors. But inevitably, their hopes are dashed by the day as these molehills of ice return again to the size of mountains. The feelings are transitory. So now I almost dread a mutiny caused by this despair. September 5th. A scene has just passed of such uncommon interest that although it is highly probable that these papers may never reach you, yet I cannot forbear recording it. We are still surrounded by mountains of ice, still in imminent danger of being crushed in their conflict. The cold is excessive, and many of my unfortunate comrades have already found a grave amidst this scene of desolation. Frankenstein has daily declined in health, A feverish fire still glimmers in his eyes, but he is exhausted, and when suddenly roused to any exertion, he speedily sinks again into apparent lifelessness. I mentioned in my last letter the fears I entertained of a mutiny. This morning, as I sat watching the wan countenance of my friend, his eyes half closed and his limbs hanging listlessly, I was roused by half a dozen of the sailors who demanded admission into the cabin. They entered, and their leader addressed me. He told me that he and his companions had been chosen by the other sailors to come in deputation to me to make me a requisition, which, in justice, I could not refuse. We were immured in ice and should probably never escape, But they feared that if, as was possible, the ice should dissipate and a free passage be opened, I should be rash enough to continue my voyage and lead them into fresh dangers after they might happily have surmounted this. They insisted, therefore, that I should engage with a solemn promise that if the vessel should be freed, I would instantly direct my course southwards. Well, that seems like a reasonable request, doesn't it? I mean, here we are stuck in the ice, probably never going to see our friends and family again. We're basically just fucked. You know, a lot of our friends have died. And, you know, some, me and some of the boys were talking, and we thought to ourselves, you know what? If we get out of this jam, we're going home. You know, no ifs, ands, or buts. We're going home no matter what, you know, the master says. No matter what Victor Frankenstein, that crazy old coot says, we are going home. Well, who's gonna tell him? Eddie, you wanna be the one to tell him that? Well, I don't wanna you know I don't wanna tell him. What about you, Dan? Oh, Sailor Dan, you wanna be the one to tell him? Oh, not me. What about Brian? I'll tell him. I'll tell him right to his face, right to his fat fucking face. I'll tell him. We're going home after this. All right, so you, Dan, Ethan, Mickey, Vladdy, Ansdor. You go. You go tell Master Frankenstein what's what, and if he doesn't like it, well, he can lump it, you know. Because then, then, you know, then we're going home, no matter what he says. Well, we'll mutiny his ass. I'll tell him. I'll tell him straight to his face. And so they did. They knocked on the door and said, "Listen to me, ya, ya fuck. We're going home after this. You hear me? If we get out of this, we're turning right around. And you damn your magnetism and damn your passage east and damn all the rest of it." We got families, and we're sick of eating the hardtack and the tootsie rolls. We're almost out of tootsie rolls as it is, and the hard molasses, and it's cold, and we're cold, and we want to go home. Oh, let's see what he says. This speech troubled me. I had not despaired, nor had I yet conceived the idea of returning, if set free. Yet could I, in justice or even in possibility, refuse this demand. I hesitated before I answered. When Frankenstein, who had first been silent and indeed appeared hardly to have force enough to attend, now roused himself, his eyes sparkled and his cheeks flushed with momentary vigor, turning towards the men he said. Now, I, I haven't read on. I don't know what he said, but if Victor Frankenstein is consistent in character, okay, here's what he should say. He should say, When I came aboard this vessel, half dead, drenched to the bone, freezing cold, uh, and chilled almost through and through, I looked at your master, Walton, and I said to him, do not let your passions outweigh your common sense. Be wise, young man. Be wise. Don't do as I did. Don't rush heedlessly into over the event horizon and plunge into the black hole. Save yourself. Be kind to those around you. Do not let your passions run amok. And so I implore you, Walton, to listen to these men. If we get out of this alive, honor their request, go home, kiss your babies, make love to your wife. Eat some dots homestyle pretzels is that what he said we'll find out in a moment let's take a break
0: here on obscure okay picture this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you i can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or i can hop into my all-new hyundai santa fe and hit the road
1: and talk. I mean, he spent the whole book talking, you know. Why not talk a little more? Here's what he says. "'What do you mean? What do you demand of your captain? Are you then so easily turned from your design? Did you not call this a glorious expedition? And wherefore was it glorious?' not because the way was smooth and placid as a southern sea, but because it was full of dangers and terror, because at every new incident your fortitude was to be called forth and your courage exhibited because danger and death surrounded it. and these you were to brave and overcome, for this was it an honorable undertaking you were hereafter to be hailed as the benefactors of your species your names adored and belonging to brave men who encountered death for honor and the benefit of mankind and now behold with the first imagination of danger or if you will the first mighty and terrific trial of your courage you shrink away and are content to be handed down as men who had not strength enough to endure cold and peril. And so, poor souls, they were chilly, and returned to their warm firesides. Why, that requires not this preparation. Ye need not have come thus far, and dragged your captain to the shame of a defeat, merely to prove yourselves cowards. O be men! or be more than men, be steady to your purposes and firm as a rock. This ice is not made of such stuff as your hearts may be. It is mutable and cannot withstand you if you say that it shall not. Do not return to your families with the stigma of disgrace marked on your brows. Return as heroes who have fought and conquered and who know not what it is to turn their backs on the foe. He spoke this with a voice so modulated to the different feelings expressed in his speech, with an eye so full of lofty design and heroism that can you wonder that these men were moved? They looked at one another and were unable to reply. I spoke. I told them to retire and consider of what had been said that I would not lead them farther north if they strenuously desired the contrary, but that I hoped that, with reflection, their courage would return. They were tired, and I turned towards my friend, but he was sunk in languor, languor and almost deprived of life. How all this will terminate, I know not, but I had rather die than return shamefully, my purpose unfulfilled." Yet I fear such will be my fate. The men, unsupported by ideas of glory and honor, can never willingly continue to endure their present hardships. I mean, so, you know, looks like Frankenstein has had a little bit of a change of heart here, you know? I mean, uh, this is the deeper character of frankenstein the relentless pursuer the chaser of lofty ideals and goals the one who would rather die than fail and in such hubris what happens you fly right into the goddamn sun don't you icarus don't you and the words are stirring and the words are moving but how many people have to die for hollow dreams Or maybe not-so-hollow dreams. What is creation worth? Is it worth all? Because that's what Frankenstein is imploring them to give. All. Walton, too, seems not to have heeded Frankenstein's story. Whatever wisdom was contained within seems lost on both of them. We can give some we might be we might even give most but does the art of creation demands that we give all and if so is it worth it i think that's for every individual to judge it may be there's those um you've probably heard this before but there's this uh uh, uh study or or not study poll that i guess went out to Athletes, I guess, Olympic athletes or those training for the Olympics that basically asked, would you give up, it was either like five or 10 years of your life. Basically, would you cut the, th- these amount of years off of your life if it would guarantee that you would win Olympic gold? And I feel like a majority of them said they would. They would take that deal. Now, that's not giving all but it's giving most you know it's giving most i don't know i don't think there's ever been anything in my life uh in terms of creative expression that i would be willing to die for i don't think i mean we have enough stuff already don't we <laughs> i mean you know what, you know if you're going to give your life to write a book or a song or make an invention or whatever it is, you know, it kind of seems like, hey, you know what? The world already has a lot of that stuff. Maybe don't give your life for it, you know? There's a certain amount of egotism involved. I mean, an enormous amount of egotism involved. And Frankenstein says it, don't you want to come back and be rewarded as heroes? Don't you want to be hailed? Because I don't know that anybody would be, you know, I don't know that you come back from where they were having not achieved your goal. I don't feel like anybody's going to be like, ah, you miserable failure. Look at you, got stuck in the ice and decided to come home with your tail between your legs, going up there where nobody's ever been before, up to the North Pole. And now look at you, you dummy. Nah, <laughs> we're laughing at you over here. I don't feel like anybody's going to be like that. I feel like I feel like they're going to be, you know, happy to see him, happy that they're home. I understand, you know. That was the age of experience. Well, I guess it wasn't quite the age of explorers, but, there, you know, there was still a lot of scientific undertaking going on and ex- explorations happening and, you know, adventuring going on. And I understand, like, the desire for glory runs pretty deep in men's blood, but would also be nice to get home, you know, watch a little HBO. <sighs> I don't know if I'm going to quite finish the book here. I guess not, but we'll go, we'll go on a little further. September 7th, the die is cast. I have consented to return if we are not destroyed. Thus are my hopes blasted by cowardice and indecision. I come back ignorant and disappointed. It requires more philosophy than I possess to bear this injustice with patience. That's a good line. That's the end of the letter, too. It requires more philosophy than I possess to bear this injustice with patience. I mean, I get it. Like, you're bummed. But better men than you, you scalawag, have attempted things and failed. It is in the attempt, the full attempt, that we find ourselves and our mettle. The success of such an endeavor may not be as important. I don't know. I don't know. But, I mean, you've given so much already, bro. Maybe give cut yourself some slack. September 12th, five days later. It is past. I am returning to England. Oh, so the ice broke up. Great. I have lost my hopes of utility and glory. Oh, and then here it says, I have lost my friend. But I will endeavor to detail these bitter circumstances to you, my dear sister, and while I am wafted towards England and towards you, I will not despond. September 9th, the ice began to move, and roarings like thunder were heard at a distance as the islands split and cracked in every direction. We were in the most imminent peril, but... As we could only remain passive, my chief attention was occupied by my unfortunate guest, whose illness increased in such a degree that he was entirely confined to his bed. The ice cracked behind us and was driven with force towards the north. A breeze sprung from the west, and on the 11th, the passage towards the south became perfectly free. When the sailors saw this, and that their return to their native country was apparently assured, a shout of tumultuous joy broke from them, loud and long continued. Frankenstein, who was dozing, awoke and asked the cause of the tumult. They shout, I said, because they will soon return to England. Do you then really return? Alas, yes. I cannot withstand their demands. I cannot lead them unwillingly to danger, and I must return." Do so if you will, but I will not. I'm now uh, returning to the accent for, for no apparent reason. You may give up your purpose, but mine is assigned to me by heaven, and I dare not. I am weak, but surely the spirits who assist my vengeance will endow me with sufficient strength. Saying this, he endeavored to spring from the bed, but the exertion was too great for him. He fell back and fainted. Um funnier would be if he uh, fell forward and smashed his face on the floor, on the deck of the ship, you know, fell, falling back onto the bed. Okay, sure, you know, fine for the story. But if we want a little, you know, comic interlude, and I think we do, he, he springs up from the bed, faints, smashes his face on the deck, you know, funny, good stuff. It was long before he was restored, and I often thought that life was entirely extinct. At length he opened his eyes. He breathed with difficulty and was unable to speak. The surgeon gave him a composing draft and ordered us to leave him undisturbed. In the meantime, he told me that my friend had certainly not many hours to live. So he's not long to live. His sentence was pronounced, and I could only grieve and be patient. He's not going to die like this. I mean, let's just be honest. He's not going to die like this. I mean, if he does, that sucks. Sucks for the book. Dramatically speaking, it just sucks, but he won't. I sat by his bed, watching him. His eyes were closed, and I thought he slept. But presently he called to me in a feeble voice, and bidding me come near, said, Alas, the strength I relied on is gone. I feel that I shall soon die, and he, my enemy and persecutor, may still be in being. Think not, Walton, that in the last moments of my existence I feel that burning hatred and ardent desire of revenge I once expressed, but I feel myself justified in desiring the death of my adversary. During these last few days I have been occupied in examining my past conduct. Nor do I find it blamable. In a fit of enthusiastic madness, I created a rational creature, and was bound towards him, to assure as far was as in my as far as was in my power his happiness and well being. This was my duty, but there was another still paramount to that. My duty towards the beings of my own species had greater claims to my attention because they included a greater proportion of happiness or misery. Urged by this view, I refused, and I did right in refusing, to create a companion for the first creature. He showed unparalleled malignity and selfishness. In evil, he destroyed my friends. He devoted to destruction beings who possessed exquisite sensations, happiness, and wisdom nor do I know where this thirst for vengeance may end. Miserable himself, that he may render no other wretched, he ought to die. The task of his destruction was mine, but I have failed. When actuated by selfish and vicious motives, I asked you to undertake my unfinished work, and I renew this request now. What? When I am only induced by reason and virtue you just said there were selfish and vicious motives <laughs> Now you're saying hey <laughs> so will you do it come on man no no the answer is no i will not i'm going home and you are going to your grave and that is that i'm sorry yet i cannot ask you to renounce your country and friends to fulfill this task And now that you are returning to England, you will have little chance of meeting with him. But the consideration of these points, and the well-balancing of what you may esteem your duties, I leave to you. My judgment and ideas are already disturbed by the near approach of death. I dare not ask you to do what I think right, for I may still be misled by passion. Yeah, you think, dummy? You think you may be misled by passion? That he should live to be an instrument of mischief disturbs me. In other respects, this hour, when I momentarily expect my release, is the only happy one which I have enjoyed for several years. The forms of the beloved dead flit before me, and I hasten to their arms. Farewell, Walton. Seek happiness and tranquility, and avoid ambition, even it be only the apparently innocent one of distinguishing yourself in science and discoveries. Yet why do I say this? I have myself been blasted in these hopes; yet another may succeed. So, I mean, it's a little—it's a little confusing here. He's saying, because you know, the last thing he said to the sailors was, "What are you doing? What do you mean you want to go home to England? Well, there's a there's a, there's a grand adventure here. Why don't you want to go home as heroes? You big ninnies, Don't is that what you want? And then here, a couple days later, as he's dying. You know he 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 goes back to seek happiness and tranquillity and avoid ambition, even if be if it be only the apparently innocent one of distinguishing yourself in science and discoveries he's saying he's saying you know he's contradicting himself here, and I guess maybe when you're near death, maybe there's a certain amount of clarity, but it seems like he was near death before, but I guess he's closer to death now than he was then but it seems like you know there's a there, there, I, I mean this feels like the truer Frankenstein right the truer purer, more close to his, to, let's say, the platonic human nature than the disfigured character we've come to know and detest. So, all right, let's keep going, or just a little bit more. His voice became faint as he spoke, and at length, exhausted by his effort, he sunk into silence. Silence. About half an hour afterwards, he attempted again to speak, but was unable. He pressed my hand feebly, and his eyes closed forever, while the irradiation of a gentle smile passed away from his lips. Well, so clearly we have to end there. So Frankenstein is dead. Uh, He died from exposure, and cold, and a broken heart, and all the rest of it. The big buddy didn't get to strangle him. You know, what I thought was going to happen, what I think should have happened, is with his last breath, he should have lowered himself down to the ice and collapsed in the direction of his creation. He should have continued his quest to the bitter end, but he did not. Instead, he found his own tranquility. He found some peace. But I have to say, as a reader, it feels unearned. It feels like he didn't really earn his peace because he didn't, you know, it's hard to, he didn't really learn his lesson. In his last breath, he's saying, by the way, don't seek out ambition. Don't seek out fame. But if you could, please pursue the big buddy to your dying breath for me. You know, so I, you know, he's a complicated character, but and flawed. But I think also maybe f- flawed in the storytelling. Um, he didn't earn that death. And look, do we in life do we earn the deaths that we have that we get? No. But there is a moralistic tone to the book, and when we're dealing with morals, and we're and when we're dealing with matters of the spirit in a fictional way, you kind of want to feel like, hey, you know, don't you get your just desserts one way or the other at the end? I would have liked to have, I like. I would have liked him to have walked the plank to get to the big buddy, with all the other sailors saying, "Don't do it! Don't do it, Vic! Don't do it! Let us take you home to England. Let us take you home." Nope. Or he, I guess home was for him was in England, but you know what I'm saying. And then, you know, with his dying breath, he walks the plank onto the ice and there, or maybe, you know, the ship sets set sail for the south as Frankenstein crawls on all fours towards the big buddy. And then just over the horizon, we see a speck, a speck just on the horizon as the ship sails away, moving towards Victor Frankenstein. And then we could have been left with some mystery and wonder as to what happened between those two. That would have been a more satisfying end, I think, to the life of Victor Frankenstein or what we knew of it. And it certainly sets up the sequel, does it not? This feels kind of bad, you know? Just not good storytelling. He just dies. He's there, you know? They plucked him out of the water, he was close to death. He told his tale, and then he died. <laughs> no thanks. Yeah, I wanted more. But, you know, it is what it is. Ah, uh, all right. My canker sore is bothering me, and we are going to end here on the penultimate episode of season two of Frankenstein. It's Frankenstein. Join us next week for a final episode of of obscure, but until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure season 2 Frankenstein is produced by Robin Lynn, Mary Shimkin, Jennifer Brennan and myself. It is generally recorded in the wilds of Connecticut with original theme music by Craig Wedrin. If you would like to support this podcast, please go to patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black, where not only Will you be receiving every single episode of Obscure Season Two Frankenstein way before the general public hears them? But you'll also get bonus episodes, uh, writings, musings, jokes aplenty. And if you sign up to our highest tier, you get to join the semi-regular book club, which we hold every now and again. It's Patreon.com/slash Michael Ian Black.